1: And Welcome to Never, Ever Give Up Hope. This is a show about people who have done that, who have never given up, no matter what. Most of my guests have survived some type of circumstances that put them in a position of hopelessness. But it also, when they got to the other side of that, put them in a position with a passion to help others. And this is what I find so exciting about people who have endured a lot is they want to take what they have learned to help somebody else. And that's why they share their stories. And that's why they write books. Some of my guests have survived extreme poverty. They've survived abuse of varying kinds. Some have had to overcome serious depression, disease. Some of them have had to fight Just to survive. My guest today is going to have one of those stories and I'm so excited to have her with me because this is a unique story. First of all all stories are unique but I think this is one that probably very few if any people have ever heard before and so we're excited to have Lisa Cohn with us today and she's also going to give us some tips on how she survived And I think that's what we need is those secrets of no matter what we're going through and we hear somebody that we can relate to and take something from their experience to help us. Our show is now heard in over 140 countries and it still maintains the number one place in Google searches on the subject of hope. It doesn't matter where you are in this world. Everybody needs that message. And I'm so excited to be able to share that. So thank you again. Listeners, if it wasn't for you guys, we wouldn't have a show. I appreciate that you listen, that you share, and that you give us feedback. So today, we have Lisa Cohn. She is the author of To the Moon and Back. Now, this is a term that we often associate, I love you, to the moon and back. But for Lisa, it had a much deeper meaning. And this is what she is going to share her story of growing up in the East Village of New York City in the 1970s and in the Unification Church, which is known as the Moonies. She's also just recently shared her story on Megyn Kelly's Today Show. You don't want to miss this story, so save it and share it. Welcome, Lisa.
2: Thank you, Carol. Thank you for having me.
1: Oh, I'm so excited. I know that you've got so much to share and you're going to have to, our listeners will have to listen fast, right?
2: (laughs) I will try and (laughs) not do my New Yorker really talk fast thing.
1: (laughs) Okay, so let's start with the beginning, of course. You were raised in two conflicting bipolar worlds. Yeah. One was your mother's world, which was the fanatical, puritanical cult of the Moonies, and the other was your father's world which was based in sex and drugs in the East Village of New York City. That's quite a lot for a young girl to take in, right? Yeah, a little bit, a little <laughs> bit, yeah. So take us back there to those days and tell us what you were going through.
2: Well, so the, the sentence I used to describe my life, to encapsulate what you just said, is the best seats I ever had at Madison Square Garden were at my mother's wedding. Because if you do know the Moonies, you do know that one of the things they were very famous for was these huge mass weddings. And my mother got married with 275 other couples on July 1st, 1982 in New York City's Madison Square Garden. And I had... Seats on the floor, red seats, best seats I ever had there. It was it was a waste. It wasn't a concert. It was a wedding. And on the other hand, the best cocaine I ever had was from my father's friend, the judge, because my father's life was, he was a New York City East Village hippie, and it was sex, drugs, and squalors, kind of what I like to say. And uh, so it was these two contrasting worlds. Either one of them would have been probably a lot for a brain to kind of take in, especially a young brain to take in and make sense of and not make, you know, absurd sense of, which is what I did. But the two together, the reality is the two together, they both kind of balanced and saved my brother and I from each other in some ways, but it was quite a mind bend to use a nice word that just, it just was, it was crazy making. It was truly crazy making. And then, and only You know, again, on even a deeper, deeper level, how am I realizing the fear and terror that I walked around in for different reasons in both these
1: Hmm. environments? So, Well, how did you get through?
2: How did I get through? That is a darn good question. So when I talk about my past, what I basically say is that I skirted disaster numerous times. So, yeah, I grew up in a cult. Yeah... But I did get out, right? And I can talk about that. And yeah, my life with my dad was crazy-making and in some ways, okay. And then, you know, after I left the cult, I nearly jumped off a bridge in college, but I didn't. I became anorexic, but managed to get out of that. I developed my own, quote-unquote, mild cocaine addiction and managed to get out of that and ended up in a series of not nice, harmful, mean relationships and managed to get out of that. Um, And so... People ask me how I survived, and I, on one hand, I have no idea. On one hand, you know, I, I write about it in my book, right? Uh, you know, why did I jump off the bridge? Um, one, maybe I was too stubborn to give in. Two, maybe there is some sort of angel or higher power protecting me. Three, my mother used to say I have a steel rod for a spine, which is probably what I developed mm. when I, out of the fear and terror, I became. I um, I developed a, a personality that doesn 't give up and will do whatever is in front of me, no matter what, and probably do it pretty close to perfectly, which isn 't always a good thing, but I just became someone who kept going and you know but I often say the grace of god there 's no reason I should be you know mm-hmm. married for twenty something twenty six years, pretty much always happily right two wonderful children i 'm a good mom to my children, you know I have a my own leadership consulting and executive coaching business I am successful and in the inside I'm generally I have my scars and you know my trigger points but I am happy and healthy and whole and thriving and um yeah so and what I can also tell you is that um you know as I you know I so I, my mom joined the church my mom joined the church when I was 10 um and at that point it was in many ways a haven for my brother and I because it was structure and there were rules and it was Safer than what my life with my mother felt like beforehand, or my life with my dad. They were already split and divorced, but um, their lives were both kind of unstable. And uh, my mom left us to move in with the church, and we ended up living in with my dad. And a lot of stuff happened with that. And and you know, I I started to leave. I can tell you the story of leaving. I started to leave somewhere between my senior year of high school and my years in college. And and then I went through all these serious, you know, self-destructive behaviors. And in 1980. Six, I ended up crawling into an Al-Anon meeting, basically saying, tell me if he's an alcoholic. There's no way I would ever be with an alcoholic, right? I, and, and looking around the room and thinking, oh, these poor people with no self-esteem, having no concept of how traumatized and broken I was on the inside because I had such a good facade on the outside. So, it, and then that started a decade-long therapy, 12-step program, spiritual practice, you name it many things i've looked at and tried to allow myself to heal first to realize and then to heal from everything that happened so that was a long answer um was
1: oh, a good answer i've got thinking. some questions Go. so was it difficult to leave like once you made the decision
2: <laughs> it was it's so funny because i was on the making kelly show and you know at the end of the interview the the church put up a statement that said um, we're sorry that something to the effect of we're sorry that Lisa was traumatized by her parents' divorce. Oh. Many children who grew up in the church have a very easy time leaving the church. It is extremely it was extremely difficult and painful to leave. Otherwise I probably would not have contemplated jumping over the bridge yes. and you know, dumped down into the gorge below. Um, when I left when I left I still believe that reverend moon was the messiah i just didn't think i could do it i okay. didn't think i could live okay. that life but even if you've left that belief um it is extremely hard because one especially if you, you you're born and or raised or you're grown up in one of these extremist situations we're called second generation second gens your brain is it's pickled right when i was when i was interviewed for making kelly they said were you brainwashed and i was like wow but I, I joined when I was 10. I didn't have a brain to be washed. I was pickled in it, right? And growing up in, a, in a, a situation like that literally carves thought patterns and belief systems and processes in your brain. They've shown research that's shown that, right? And so breaking away from that, breaking away from this is the ultimate truth and all else is evil. And we were taught that we were taught that if you ever questioned, it was Satan trying to win your soul back, right? So if you ever questioned in your mind... You were terrified and you pushed against it. So we we were taught in many ways never to question, never to doubt, never to disobey. And so when you leave and you walk away from everything you know and love and everything you believe and the guilt and the shame and the scars, I, I had it and I'm you know involved with a lot of other children who've grown up in extremist situations or adults who were children in extremist situations. And we all have very similar patterns of... Again, how we were carved and how we were indoctrinated since we were very, very young and how difficult it is, even if you don't believe, to break those patterns of belief and to, and to, and to go forward. Many people are self-destructive. Many people have problems. Many people you know, can be suicidal for a while. It's really, really hard. So I always say there's nothing as intoxicating as knowing you have the truth, even if it's not wow. true. But know it's true. It is intoxicating and powerful. And to walk away from that, it just shatters your whole psyche what
1: about your brother
2: my brother he left uh, a couple years after I did (laughs) my brother so I went to school at Cornell and um, there were Moonies there but none of them that I knew and so I just my brother says I just slowly drifted away right from the from the outside and the inside it was all the turmoil. My brother went to school at Drew University where there is a seminary and in that seminary were Moonies going to you know going to school in the seminary who knew him so he was watched constantly so he told me that uh as soon as he was done with school and out of Drew he sat down with my mother and said that's it I'm done and I like to say I still haven't told my mother I'm out I think she knows but I never I never made a declaration but yeah so he left when he was about 21 or 22 as well um and we're both still he's great and we're both, we'll always still be kind of healing from yes, yes. all the kind of craziness that went on in well, both, things, both aspects of our life.
1: Things trigger it too thoughts yeah. and, and smells and music and. <laughs>
2: thoughts and smells, exactly. music, everything. Eat, and the Moonies are such a great thing to make fun of that you still, like, still you'll be in a room with people, like, oh my God, are there all Moonies here or something? And you're like, oh, okay. Whoa. Yeah. No one hits hard right so yeah it's um yeah things trigger there are definitely triggers that i have and that one has from stuff like this absolutely
1: no are they they're still around right
2: they are still around um Reverend Moon died 6 or 7 years ago but the the unification church is still around it has um morphed into a, i think three different factions one faction is run by hakta han Reverend Moon's wife Um, And it's called the Family Federation for Peace, I believe. Another faction that I'm not quite sure what the name of is run by, I believe, two of his children, two of their children. And a third faction is the Sanctuary Church, which was quite infamous here in Pennsylvania where I live now uh, last year because they had a wedding ceremony where they brought – supposedly not loaded ar-15s the automatic rifles into the wedding ceremony because they do believe that when uh in the bible when it talks of the rod of iron it means guns and they are armed to fight god's holy war (laughs) so yeah his children had a really hard life and most of them are pretty messed up or gone or dead so yeah so it's um so the church
1: isn't dying
2: it's not dying it's um It's not necessarily growing, I don't think. I don't think people are joining, obviously, as they used to back in the 70s and 80s. They're having children, and many of the children are leaving. So I think it's kind of still there and stagnant. I used to say to people, they live next door to you, you just don't know it because they've assimilated in many ways. But they're still there. They're still there, and they're still trying to preach their truth and save the world for God as they see it. So, yeah.
1: And what about your mom?
2: My mom left... In 1996, which I never thought would have ever happened, but um, yeah, she um, I had my first child in 1996, and my mom was living in, in Washington, D.C., and she said she'd come up for a week to spend a week with me when I had the baby, and she told her job she was going to do that, and she came up for a week, and her job fired her, so then she had no job, and she ended up moving up to near where we were, moving up to the New York area, and uh, going to school and getting a master's in NYU's uh, a master's in special education at NYU and starting kind of a new life here outside of the church. Um, So, which is fascinating. Do you
1: ever talk about it?
2: Yeah, we do. Um, It has definitely been a um, ongoing process, two steps forward, three steps back. Sometimes we can talk about it, sometimes we can't. Um, You know, when my mom... Left. She literally she moved out and left us uh, with her father, who was on the verge of a nervous breakdown. And it, you know, I was cooking and cleaning and shopping and running the house when I was in sixth grade. And then my grandfather got put in the hospital, and we got shuffled around, and all this stuff happened. And my mom moved into the church to help run the the group there that was set up for people who had families and couldn't move into the church, which is ironic. And then she spent much of her time in the church taking care of other people's children in the church. So. Members would have babies and they would leave them in nurseries and my mother would care for all of them. And in fact, many of the, you know, now young adults that I connect with who grew up in the church are like, oh, we love your mom. She took such great care of us. It's like, yeah, you and not me. So it's a, it's my brother and I were actually just texting about it today. It's a really weird hmm. thing. And so over the years, we've talked about it. And I would say that it's possibly only in the recent past since the book come out, has come out that my mother actually... Has been able or willing to maybe grasp uh, what she did and the impact of what she really? did. Really, say things like, "I, I wish you get over this." <laughs> you know, uh, when will you get over this? And my therapist used to say, "Tell her you'll get over it when she stops doing it now." But she just she kept not being able to own that she left us. Yeah, she left yeah. us, and then she left us anyways over and over and over again, and mm-hmm. let a lot of Tough stuff happened to us in the church. There were times where we were not allowed in the building where she worked. So we would literally, you know, we lived in New York City and it was in Westchester County. And we'd come up in the morning to hear everyone speak, and then we'd go to the building where she worked and we'd ring the doorbell and we'd say, "Her name was, was is Mim Can Mim come down and say hello?" And they'd say, uh, "No, she's busy with the other kids right now." She says she'll see you next week, and then we leave. Right? <laughs> you know, like wow. now I think about it, I'm like. Like then it was like, well, that's, that's what Reverend Moon said has to happen. So it's okay. And now I think about it and it's, like, it's like, wow, my mother wouldn't come down for five yeah, minutes. Yeah. And she wouldn't say to anybody, it's not okay not to let my kids in the house for five minutes. But that, you know, that's what happens when you're brainwashed. so and, But only recently has she been able to kind of say, wow, I would do anything not to have done what I did which is something my brother and I both needed her to say. and yes, probably needed her to say yes. every single day of her life, right? So, yeah.
1: So well, Was it some kind of a compound situation where you lived and worked and, you know, like some of the other cults have large areas where, that are designated strictly for this?
2: No, I mean, so the Unification Church would have buildings within, you know, regular places. So in New York City, they, they have the New Yorker hotel. They had okay. a building on West 43rd Street in Washington, D.C. They had places where my mother, when my mother was up in Tarrytown, New York, there were, you know, there was an estate there. There was an estate there that Reverend Moon lived on. There was the house she was working in called Jacob House, which is where the nursery was. But they were, it wasn't like a compound totally secluded from everybody else. So in the building, you were secluded and sequestered, but but you also had much more connection with daily life than other cults, extremist situations that I've heard about, and we never actually lived in the church. my brother and I. we had this weird, weird again dichotomy of believing it and going there time we could, and every weekend and every summer, and even if my mother wasn't around going to stay in the church buildings with church members and then going home Monday through Friday and living with my dad. So it was a really yeah, yeah, yeah,
1: and what did your dad think of the whole thing?
2: Oh, my father he, he was amazing because he hated it. He, you know, thought Reverman was evil. He knew Reverman was evil. He hated us being involved. And to his credit, he never once said anything negative about it. Um, Because, one, I think he knew that um, Mm -hmm. he would lose us even more if he did. Right, right. And, two, I mean, my parents did many crazy things, but they divorced really well. And he knew that we loved my mother, and he wasn't about to badmouth my mother, even Mm -hmm. though he could not stand what she was doing. That said, his friends had you know full license to say whatever the heck they wanted about it and they did all the time right but my but my father who my, if you read the book you see i'll call him danny my, my father will still say i'm a person i'm not a label call me danny don't call me dad if you call me dad i'll call you Dodd. if you call me father i'll call you daughter call me by my name so danny he never he never said anything negative as much as he hated yes. how much they were involved yes. absolutely
1: interesting now, I'm gonna ask you a strange question that I don't know if you can answer, but as okay. you were talking I was thinking, because this is a form of abuse, obviously. Yeah. yeah, yeah. And in this day and age we're much more aware, at least we should be, of various types of abuses. Mm-hmm. Looking back, in trying to think of where you were at the time, emotionally, mentally, whatever, have you ever wondered what would have happened if you had left earlier? And could you? Did those thoughts ever, ever uh, run through your mind to seek, a, you know, some authorities or something like that, like you would today in an abusive situation?
2: Absolutely not. <laughs> um. So I am, and often people say to me, "Why didn't anybody step in?" Yeah. It was different back then. Um. I That's guess. Um. Yeah. Right. And so, and I firmly will. Stand on this one when you grow up in a situation, whatever it is, you don't realize yeah. that it's not right good right so I, I even as an adult right I knew that. My childhood was weird, and I could tell you stories about my mother and my father and my mom and the church and the moonies and the mass weddings and lots. Of, and even before that, she would, like, make her own, you know, clothes out of tablecloths, and she modeled nude, and, like, all this stuff. And my dad, he got his tooth knocked out in a bar fight, and he made it into an earring, and he shows up at my fifth grade party with a shaved head and an earring and a tooth hanging from his ear and a top hat. I can make you laugh, mm-hmm. but I never realized that any of it, again, had... Harmed me or was not okay, okay, okay until I literally stumbled into Al-Anon, and as my brother likes to say, when you're like in an Al-Anon meeting and you're you're qualifying, you're telling your story in front of fifty to a hundred people, and these people who've had really hard lives and you know have suffered through you know addiction or you know addiction of their loved ones and all that, and their jaws drop at your story and they go, "Oh my God!" That's when you start to go, "Oh, maybe, <laughs> maybe it wasn't okay. Who knew?" Right. And so so and I was so highly functional that, you know, even now people who knew me then and saw me through and knew me my freshman year of of college read the book and they say, how come we didn't know this is how you were suffering? And I said, you know, I don't tell anybody. So and right. I also believe that, you know, so if you read my story, I in many ways suffered what we call covert sexual abuse, emotional sexual abuse, at Mm -hmm. least, from Mm -hmm. a number of men in the church who were completely inappropriate with me at a very young age, who were much younger. And they were also the people whose love was an anchor and who saved me, right? So it's all very, Right, right. right? And so, yeah, I had, whereas now I can point back and say that was not okay over and over. I can give you the long laundry list of things that were not okay. I had no idea. And again, my belief was so complete and absolute that there's nothing anyone could have said to me to make me think that anything that happened in the church was wrong. Until until it I first started to crack. And it, I first started to crack um, my, my, the summer between my junior and senior year of high school. My father sent me to music camp, and Danny sent me to music camp, and I'm convinced he sent me to keep me away from the church for the first time. So he sends me off to music camp, and I become friends with people who for the first time in my life I know that they are gay and or bisexual and that was a huge sin in the Mm -hmm. church so it's a huge huge sin in the church so I wrote to my mom and I'm like what do I do these people are my friends and I get back something to the effect of your choices to stay away from them avoid them or convert them they're evil they're sinful these are your these are your options and for the first time my brain went i don't know if that makes sense like i don't agree with the i love these they're wonderful people they're like these really wonderful loving people and so it was the first kind sense of you know thank goodness danny sent me away right? the first sense of something here doesn't feel all the way right and so i came back from music camp and then also i was when i was in the church i was best friends with reverend moon's children um and this whole soap opera thing happened within the group with which I was in, and someone spread rumors about me, and Reverend Moon made a declaration um, basically to keep me away from his children. So I, I like to say that the man I call the Messiah said I was evil and banished me from his children. Yeah. And so those two things happened, and I, I was obviously shook by them. And I, I went to my senior year of high school. Um, I went to Stuyvesant High School in New York City, and I've been involved but not really ever involved. And I went to my senior year of high school, and I thought, okay... I, you know, I joined the church as a ten-year-old, as a as a child. I'm now a seventeen-year-old, and I want to step back a little bit and make a full adult decision at the age of seventeen to come back into the church so that I can commit my whole life, never doubt, you know, be blessed by Reverend Moon, and be all the way in. And I started hanging out with people at school and having friends and getting more and more involved in life on the outside, and um, I liked it. <laughs> mm. Right? I found more love and acceptance in some ways I just, I I, you know, I, it, it felt good and I started to get very, very confused and then in my senior year of high school I did this huge, huge no-no I started dating a boy, which is the other big sin right? Because the fall of man is premarital sex and there was no way I was ever supposed to date anybody ever and um, I started dating someone and hell broke loose and everybody's all freaked out and mourning me and talking to me and you're going to die and fall and and then, that's when I, when I went off to Cornell, I um, knew that I would break up with him, but I didn't. And that's when I, you know, almost jumped off the bridge in order to be easier to die than to make this decision. And then I, I eventually had a friend who said to me, because I kept saying, what if it's right? What if it's right? How can I leave? What if it's right? And I have a very dear friend who said to me many, many years ago, what if it is right, but it's not right for you? And for whatever reason, that was the line that I held on to. And I then slowly extricated myself. But again... Almost jumped off the bridge, became anorexic. got addicted to cocaine, and let let a lot of men be not nice to me, um, without thinking there was again anything right. wrong, right.
1: right? Right. So, well, your reality was distorted.
2: Yeah, my reality was quite distorted, and my ability to my ability to take pain is huge. Um, my ability to push through anything is huge. My guilt and my shame and my fear triggers are easily triggered, so mm-hmm. I will. T- <laughs> responsibility for everything, even if it's got nothing to do with me, and I will make it happen. Yeah, so that's what kept me functioning and cracked inside for many, many years.
1: It's people like you who have had these horrendous experiences that can take that experience and help others. Now, we're going to talk about that and what you're doing, but before we do that, I want to ask you, how did this experience in your life help you, A rear your own children and B, <laughs> how did it help you make them aware of what's going on?
2: You know, it's, it's interesting and before I answer those two parts I'm going to back up to say uh, something that, so since I wrote my memoir and it's come out and all the, the social media I do about that um, I've, been, I've had strangers reach out to me on all different forms of social media and I still remember I had this one young woman young adult maybe in her teenage years reach out to me and kind of list her the trauma that she's experienced and was experiencing and whereas I would never wish trauma on anyone ever you know what I what I've learned what I believe is those of us who have suffered through something have a deeper more vibrant appreciation for the simple things than those people who have never actually gone through something so I, you know, just the sun on the trees and the fact that I have two healthy kids and, you know, the simplest things in life, yes. I have a deeper appreciation, you know, than people who haven't gone through stuff. So so that's one way that it's affected me and that I offer to people, the, you know, the upside of it. Mm-hmm. Again, wouldn't wish it on anybody. Um, as far as my kids, so it's funny when I... You know, before we got married my husband used to be afraid that I would leave like my mom did and I used to be afraid that I would leave like my mom did Um, what I can tell you is one I probably was a little over enmeshed with my children that is probably true Um, two I know that I healed myself by my ability to love my children three I know I'm a good mom trust me they have their stuff and I've messed up and I'm not perfect but I know my goal I mean I read a lot of and books and stuff, I do all that sort of stuff, but my 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 bottom line goal in raising my children was that they would always know they were loved and treasured and valued and that they would feel relatively safe. but really that you know really that they were loved because I never I did not know that. I never really? knew that I was loved or lovable. Um, and both my kids, will will never doubt, you know, my son will tell you that mom's too mushy and it's annoying, will never doubt how much they are adored, absolutely adored and, you know, feel relatively safe. Well, so that's so that was... Um, Ask me about how does it affect how I raise my children and I think you asked me something about how, what did I tell them about well, how things are and what's going on and so the... The interesting thing is so my, my children, my oldest is will be 23 in June and my second, my older will be 23 in June and my second will be 17 in April. And they did not know anything of my background for a very long time. In fact, in the many years I was working on the book, my oldest child used to say, really? my mom's writing a memoir. She had a bad childhood. I don't know what it is. <laughs> oh, my because goodness. We, we were very clear. Well, one. I do have relationships with both my parents, and therefore my kids have relationships with yes, both my parents. Yes. So I didn't want to hurt that in any way, right? I, I love the fact that my parents were better grandparents than they are than they were parents, and my children love both of them. And two, whereas absolutely, like so, there's epigenetics and generational trauma. Absolutely, my trauma has affected, will affect my children, uh, both. Biologically, genetically and how I raised them. And absolutely at some point they need to understand it. There's no reason when they were young for them to have any sense of it That's in my right. mind That's and right. no reason for them to truly understand the depth of it. To this day, my older kid said to me, I read your book, but I don't think I really get it. And I'm like, good. Don't. Right. So it was, you know, my older kid read, heard this story. Both of them heard this story when they were about 15 or 16 because my older kid finally said okay tell me and so I told the whole story and my younger kid the book was coming out and he read a a postcard that had the line about the best seats at Madison Square Garden and the best cocaine and I'm like okay you're 15 years old and you know your mom is down below we should probably have a conversation um so that's when they both heard this story, and they both have read the book. Um, my bro, my 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 younger kid, he likes to say, "My, you wrote a book in air quotes about your traumatic in air quotes childhood." He likes to joke about it. Right. So they both have kind of like taken it in, but not fully. And their friends have read it, but nobody talked. So it's so they know the story, which gives me the. And now I can say to my younger one, I'm like, "Now you know why mommy likes kimchi, right? Because okay. <laughs> that's." korean food right i'm like and and now you know why mom's so mushy right this is why mom's so mushy right get used to it right and so it gives them an understanding but again i have no need for them to truly get the depth of what i experience because why would i want them why would i want them to see that i could only i mean it, it can't be a good thing to hear or see or experience for your your parent right so
1: I think what my question basically was asking in addition to that was, yeah. um, does this help them be aware of what's out there?
2: I think it does. I think um, my older kid is quite radical and out to fix a lot of wrongs in the world in a lot of ways. I think it, it makes them both more aware and able to talk about a lot of things. So, I mean, the the good of how I grew up, both with my mom and my dad, is... Um, very open-minded, right? Accepting of a lot of different things, a lot of different people, a lot of the diversity. It's also the work I do. I'm a leadership consultant and executive coach, and we do a lot of work on, you know, connecting with other people and different people in all those ways. So that's kind of the essence of who I am and what, and the work I do. And so I think it's given both my kids an experience that's far greater than the little bubble of a town that we raised them in Mm -hmm. you know a sweet little wayne pennsylvania we call it wayne's world it is a complete bubble so it's given them both a sense of there is there is suffering out there there is poverty out there there is hard times out there we're very lucky and there are extreme situations and there are drugs and like there's there's addiction in our family like there's all these things that that they teach us in school, except for the, the, they don't teach you about extreme situations or cults in the school, but all these things that it need, you know, it's good to be aware of and it's, and it's, it's good to talk about it. When my, when my younger kid, when he first you know, heard the story and then he went and spent time with my mom, he came back and he was having a really hard time putting those two together. We had a really deep hearted conversation as a family about you know, bad mother, good grandmother, all separate. And then my husband said, well you know, Mimi, that's what they call her, Mimi was very susceptible. And I was like, pause. Stop. Every single person is susceptible. Every person on this planet is susceptible to an extremist situation because, as a species, we crave community, certainty, and purpose. And an extreme situation gives you absolute certainty, unbelievable community, and purpose beyond belief. So it feels a need that anybody can, you know, at a certain point in time or a certain indoctrination te- tactics or whatever can be brought into. So my my kids know this, you know, before. Right. Most of their friends would ever know this okay. to be true. Yeah.
1: Now you touched on uh, what you're doing now to help people. So let's let's talk about that. And I think that part of it is helping people from self-destruction and esteem yes. issues, and yes. also offering them hope. Yes. And it is very obvious that you're passionate about your message. <laughs> really? <laughs> yeah. You wow. Think. <laughs> <laughs> you think?
2: Yeah, and so on the one side of the book, right, my memoir, To the Moon and Back, and I speak at any book club virtually or in person, any networking group, I've done book readings, I will go to college classes, I will go to high school classes, I will go anywhere because for that I do have three messages. One is that extremist situations exist, they're out there, they're prevalent right now and we're all susceptible. Two is, as we've touched on, right, for anybody who feels hopeless or damaged beyond repair, I've been there. I can go there, yes. and I want to give a message of hope, that there is hope. Even those moments when you like feel so viscerally wrong and damaged and shameful, right, or whatever that deep, dark thing that you've created from your trauma, there is hope. And three, both from my own experience and from my work as a coach, which I'll talk about, I do believe as a species, we're extremely... Hard on ourselves, and we're self critical and self lambasting and self judging, and we're just so mean to ourselves. And we all need a huge dose of self compassion and self love. And those are the messages from the book. And then, as I said, I, I own a leadership development and executive coaching firm. I have for over 20 years. And with that, I'm preaching many of these same messages just until the, recently when the memoir came out. They were more um, hidden in, in corporate speak, okay, <laughs> right? But the same, you know, now with the memoir, I can say to people, well, you know, this is my story and this is what I've learned. But, um, but with my corporate clients, I talk about self-awareness, self-forgiveness, self-compassion, and then awareness of others and understanding of others and the stories we make up about ourselves and other people and how can we get together to bring more love, even to the corporate world, right? You call it whatever you want, and effectiveness to what we're doing and how we show up. So... I really, you know, my, my work mirrors my, all of the tools and best practices and positive psychology and mindfulness and meditation and all the things that I have discovered over the years to help myself survive and then thrive. And I share that in the work I do with corporate clients and not-for-profit clients. So, I'm and, lucky.
1: And what about, so that's, you have speaking engagements as well. Yes. yes, yes. And what about one-on-one coaching? What do you do there?
2: So one-on-one coaching, <laughs> I always say to people, coaching was the most um, selfish thing you can ever receive. In some ways, it's like a massage, but for your whole being. Um, because truly, a coach sits with you. I sit with my clients and help them figure out what they want, like, how they, like in, in the corporate setting, right? what they want, where they want to go, how they want to show up, what's their best self. How are they getting in their way? And how can they actually, you know, how can they bring their best self? How can they do what they want to do? How can they achieve what they want to achieve? How can they connect with the people on their team? How can they work with a boss who absolutely is driving them crazy? How do they manage that? How do they show up, right? How do they not let those things ruin their life? How do they still do their best work? So it's, it's uh, really, and I, because of, probably because of my background, I do a lot of work on, you know, the surface level, leadership skills, I can teach them, management skills, I can teach them, delegation, communication, conflict, I got models, and articles, and best practices for everything, but I do a lot of work on, again, like, what are the thought patterns in your head that are getting in your way, right, what are the, what are the experiences you had that taught you that you had to fight with everybody, and how you think that so that you're not going into every meeting or every situation or every relationship fighting first or what are the experiences you have that taught you that you had to be that you to live in fear and to protect yourself and how can you you know unwire those and unplug those and rethink those i i literally had one client who um worked with us and then came back to work with us because she had this huge blow up at work and she was trying to work it through and uh you know finally came out in a conversation that she'd been date raped and i looked at her and i said why wouldn't you go into every situation with your with your hands up your fists up ready to fight Mm -hmm. of course you would like of course you would because someone you knew and trusted abused you right and so how do you how and we worked on how do you go into each situation not having to come with your your fists up not letting them down so you can get taken again but not always fighting right and so it's it's really a chance to say again what of me that's working? What of me that's not working? How am I getting in my own way? I learned so many mistruths as a child about myself, about right. the world, what I was responsible for. It was my job to save the world. That's a big, heady thing. No, and I was good at it, right? I was really good at it. So, you know, and I also, again, I was best friends with Reverend Moon's children. So in the church, there was this hierarchy. His children were true children. And then children born in the church were blessed children. And then people like me were sinful and awful. Mm -hmm. So I learned a lot of stuff with that too, right? So there's all these fake truths that I learned, fake news, if you will, right? And how do I, how do I, you know, just last night I was having a hard time sleeping and I was like, no, you can relax. You're not in danger anymore because my being is just, you know, it is geared to never Mm -hmm. relax, never let go of control because that is what saved my life but i don't need to do that anymore so so even in my corporate work i help clients see how they're replaying those silly things they made up when they were a kid or a 20 year old or in their first job to make sense of things and be a choice to how we show up
1: now you have a blog do you address different uh, things there or tell tell us about that
2: we well, actually have two blogs so um my my uh website and blog for my writing for my memoir is com. so my name L-I-S-A K-O-H-N and then writes as in W-R-I-T-E-S dot com and I do it's very personal I know about the my learnings and my okay. and about the book and all that but it's there and I have a blog post that goes out every week and then on the other side my business is called Chatsworth Consulting and our uh our blog on that is Thoughtful Leaders, so thoughtful and then leaders.com. And uh, we put up blog posts twice a week that are sometimes leadership focused or management focused or career focused. And then sometimes, you know, the inner being of a person showing up as a leader focused, like the dark side. And how do you, how do you embrace your dark side? And why is it there? So in both, in both blogs, I'm one, I'm more personal in sharing my story and the our inner workings but in both we share the inner workings you know that get in our way again and, and that again that hurt us so yeah I, I will as you said I'm passionate about what I do both in the work and in the book and we'll talk to just about anybody if it can help them find a way to be happier
1: well you are a perfect example <laughs> of how to take a negative experience and turn it into something positive. And that's what I love about my guests on this show because virtually every one of them has done just that. And it's just wonderful to see that instead of being in the pity mode, the self-pity mode, the you-have-no-idea-what-happened-to-me mode, but you share your story and how this can help somebody else. And so I sincerely appreciate that. Now you've got your blog, you've got your uh, coaching, you have uh, your book you have speaking engagements you're putting yourself out there (laughs) in a raw situation and and everybody it's reciprocal everybody gets a benefit from it because you are growing within yourself and healing at the same time you're helping others do that and I think that's what really we're put on this earth for you know it's to help one another and as we do that we help ourselves you know the old adage that says if you think you're bad off find somebody worse yeah. And because you will always be able to. There's always somebody that's got a bigger story, a worse story, a Absolutely. situation that makes you go, oh, my goodness. And, and yet you take that and you say, let's help one another. So you are the perfect example of doing that. And <clears throat> I know that the audience is definitely going to want to, A, buy your book be connect with you in various uh, social media sites and all that information of course will be on your post but the book will be an intriguing story I can guarantee you that it'll be one that you have not heard before and it'll be one that you can pass on to other people and who knows how it can help you in your situation You know, even even, um, just feeling hopeless. I mean, you you know, just as I mentioned a couple minutes ago, how when we think we're the worst off and then find someone more worse off. So it's also an encouragement in that respect.
2: It's yeah i i often say that my story is unique the only person with a similar story is my older brother but the themes are universal
1: yes the are universal. that's a very yeah. good way of putting it and i thank you for that Absolutely. so we will say goodbye for now but we definitely will stay in contact in that i would like to have you come back again i would I, love to come I back think, again you know, let, let's in six months or so give me a call and let, let's even address some more regarding your story because there's so much here and i listened really hard and really fast but i didn't hear it all (laughs) i tried to talk slowly i'll try harder next time no it's not the it's not the talking fast it's that it's so full you know there's so much there so anyway thank you so much lisa for being on never ever give up hope and we will see you again thank
0: you bye-bye